This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg you know, Usually you get the appeal letters You read it, uh, a minute, it takes you a minute to read and either you write the track, you don't write the track. Alter Rebbe's appeal letters, you have to spend a few days studying it to understand. It's a very, very profound letter, letter 5, page 68. And by the time you've done this letter, your question is, where do I sign? First says, Vayaz David Shem. David made a name. Commentaries say, what does it mean? It means David, King David, made a name for himself, built, created a reputation. Even amongst his enemies. Because David would bury the dead, even of the enemies. He treated them with dignity and respect, even of the enemies of Israel that he killed. But he buried them, gave them a burial, a decent burial. Or, in general, through his heroism, his courage, David made a name. He had a reputation. His reputation preceded him. That's the literal meaning of the verse. But he's going to bring the Zohar. The Zohar says that it means that King David made the name of Hashem. It's referring to the name of Hashem. And David HaMelech made the name of Hashem. How did he make the name of Hashem? As the verse continues, King David did justice and gave tzedakah. That through tzedakah, through mitzvahs in general, but specifically through tzedakah, we make Hashem's name. And that's what he's going to explain. What does that mean? What do you mean you make Hashem's name? And specifically through tzedakah. And David made a name. The simple meaning of the verse is either, as Rashi explains, that David, David gave the Jewish people a good name by burying the dead of their enemies, or as other commentators explain, that David made a name for himself through his heroism. The Holy Zohar relates the above phrase to the verse, and David executed justice and tzedakah with all his people. The name that he thereby made is thus the divine name in the words of the Zohar. Rabbi Shimon wept and said, Who makes the holy name every day? He who gives charity unto the poor. Two questions, however, present themselves. How can we possibly say that the holy name is made? How is the name made through the giving of charity? Why does Hashem's name need to be made? How is it possible that we make His name? And He says Hashem's name needs to be made each and every day. How are we? We are the ones who make Hashem's name. And what's the connection? By giving tzedakah, you make Hashem's name. What does this all mean? 
This may be understood in the light of the comment of our sages of blessed memory on the verse, for by the divine name that is composed of the letters Yud, Hey, Hashem is the strength of the worlds. The Hebrew word here translated strength, whose root letters imply an additional meaning, namely in this context, by means of the divine name that is composed of the letters Yud, Hey, Hashem formed or created the world. So the literal meaning is that Hashem is the strength of the world. It's like the rock, the strength of the world. But then he says that Sur literally means rock, the strength. But it also is, comes from the root word Tsayar, to form, to shape. So it, the verse also means that Talmud says, Ki with the letters Yudkei, Hashem forms all the worlds. Yudkei, Hashem also forms all the worlds with the letters Yudkei. And specifically, the above quoted verse, the sages comment, this world was created by the letter He of the divine name, Yudkei. The world to come was created by the letter Yud of the divine name, Yudkei. In what respect is this world connected with the letter K and the world to come with the letter U? The Alter Rebbe answered this question by first explaining the concept of the world to come in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. So this rabbi say, the Yud K with the two letters, these two letters, Hashem creates all of the worlds. The two letters. But specifically, with the letter Yud, He creates Elam Haba, and with the letter hey, he creates this world and the material world. Um, and now he's going to explain what does it mean with the letter yud, Hashem creates Elam Haba, and with the letter hey, Hashem creates this world. So, in order to understand this, first we have to understand what is Elam Haba. Elam Haba here refers to the afterlife. Ganeden, the Garden of Eden, where the soul goes after, for its eternal reward, after its life in this world, the soul uh, journeys and transitions into the world. Olam Haba, the world to come. Because Olam Haba could also mean Mashiach will come, the future, especially the time of the resurrection. But here, the rabbi is referring to specifically Olam uh, Haba, Ganeden where the souls reside after the soul departs from the body and the soul moves on to the Garden of Eden. So with the letter Yud, Olam Haba is created. So first we have to understand what is Olam Haba. What is special about Olam Haba? What differentiates the Olam Haba from this world? This means that the delight which the souls of the righteous experience as they enjoy the splendor of the Shekhinah, which radiates in the upper and lower gardens of Eden. consists of their pleasure in their apprehension and conception. For they conceive with the faculty of Chochmah, knowledge, with the faculty of Dat, and understand, the faculty of Bina, some degree of apprehension of the light and vitality which infuses here in a revealed manner from the blessed Ein Sof onto their soul in the spirit of understanding. 
spiritual life force finds its way down into this world in so concealed a manner that all we know of it is the mere fact of its existence, the diat amitziut. In Gan Eden, by contrast, the spiritual life force issues forth in such a manner that its very existence is, is apprehended. The difference between this world where the soul is in the body and the world to come, when the soul departs the body and the soul, the life of the soul in Ganeden, is that in Ganeden, in the Garden of Eden, in the afterlife, the soul gets to, gets tremendous pleasure from understanding godliness. Because when a Jew studies Torah and you do mitzvot, you're doing godly things. It's not part of this world. The world doesn't tell you to put on tefillin, to light a Shabbat candle, to give tzedakah, the way the Torah tells us to give tzedakah. These are godly things. So in the afterlife, the soul gets to appreciate and gets to benefit from the Torah and the mitzvah that it did in this world. So it, it enjoys and understands and comprehends and receives tremendous pleasure from understanding godliness. What gives a person pleasure? What gives a person pleasure is when you understand something. When you understand something very well. When you really grasp something. When you understand something thoroughly, inside out, and you understand it very well, that gives you pleasure. When something is vague and you just have a very general, vague, fuzzy feeling, you don't yet fully understand it, you don't have the pleasure. It's only when you really, really, it settles in and you understand it and you grasp it, then it gives you tremendous pleasure. But what's the difference between this world and the world to come? Ganeden, the Garden of Eden. In this world we can also understand. We also learn. We also study. We've been studying for years. We also learn and study and we understand something, able to grasp something of godliness. We learn about Hashem. We learn about the infinite. We learn about the worlds and the ten spirit. So we can also derive pleasure and understanding from understanding Hashem. What's the difference? What's the key difference between our experience, this world and in the afterlife? And the difference is that you know our understanding, since we're, our souls are in bodies, so our understanding of godliness Godliness is too abstract for us. We could only understand it by way of like a parable. So everything in this world becomes like a parable that helps us understand godliness. But pure spirituality is something that's so far from us, we can't really understand it, we can't relate to it, we can't really connect with it. Just like a teacher, when a teacher teaches, you have to, you have, to have a parable. Why do you have to have a parable? Why can't you just talk abstract? The Torah speaks very concrete. The Torah says an ox that gores another ox, you have to pay. The Torah doesn't just give us an abstraction. If you damage someone's things, you have to pay. Because abstract principles we can't relate to. We can relate to something concrete. I can picture an ox. I know what it means an ox goring another ox. I know what it means I have to take responsibility. It's my ox. I was responsible to watch it, make sure that it doesn't damage someone else's property. But if you... If you if you'd strip it away from its material, from the parable, from the physical reality, if you're going to go straight to abstract concepts, 
it's very difficult. Unless a person is a very smart and wise person, he can deal in pure abstractions. But most people can't deal in pure abstractions. They have to concretize it for them. Two bottles and two bottles. I know what you're talking about. It's like a child. You have to tell them two bottles and two bottles equal four. It's the only way he's going to learn. Everything has to be concrete and material. Because we are concrete and material beings. We have bodies. This is our reality. This is what we, we, we can relate to. So when you give a parable, oh, from the parable I can begin to understand somewhat of the concept. But I can't, I can't just, just go to pure abstractions. It's just not my world. and I, I, you know, you, you'll, lose, you'll lose the student. You can't relate to it. So, in a certain sense, we cannot walk away from that parable. Since we are souls and bodies, we are materialistic beings. So the reality to us is material things, tangible things. Anything we can touch is real to us. You talk about spirituality, soul, something you can see, you can hear, you can touch, you can smell. You talk about godliness, you talk about things that are you know, we're lost. This is, not, this is not our reality. The only way for us to understand this reality is through analogies and through parables and by understanding the body and understanding from our own personal experience the body's soul. So we notice that the body has a soul. We can extrapolate that the God is the soul of the world. We begin to work our way to appreciate that there's, there's a greater reality. But you can't totally walk away from that parable. We're stuck in the parable. This is reality to us. Versus once the soul leaves the body, then the soul enters into a different realm of reality. The soul can directly experience godliness without the body, without any material reference. It can go straight to the, straight to the essence, straight to the point. It's like the difference in one word, the difference between Metzius and Mohus, it's the difference between experiencing and knowing. It's two different things. There's experiencing and there's knowing. You could know something and know it well and grasp it and understand it and discuss it and talk about it and teach it and communicate. But you've never experienced it. You, know, you can learn about another culture, you can learn about another country, you can learn it. But until you've gone there and experienced it, it's, you can't compare all the learning in the world doesn't come close to once experiencing Once you're experiencing it, it's like a whole different, a whole different thing. It's like a difference between hearing and seeing. You can hear about something and hear about something and know it well. But when you actually see it for the first time, wow, you had no idea. You, for the, you, you couldn't even relate to it before. It's all, abstra- it's all abstract information. But once you experience it, it's a whole different thing. Here we talk about things. We talk about holiness and we talk about godliness and we talk about soul and we talk about spirituality. But it's all talk. Could we relate to it half the time? We can we can hardly barely relate to it. We can relate to good food, to something tangible, to material. This we can relate to. But you talk about spirituality and godliness and holiness. This is purity. These are things that are so beyond our realm. So at best, we're trying to grasp it by way of parable, but we can't escape that parable. We're in prison. We can't, we can't get beyond it. But in heaven, the soul experiences it. 
And he can't even compare. One moment of experiencing is worth more than all the... That's why it says the Arizal, the great Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, Isaac Luria, 16th century in Tzvath. says one Shabbat, Parshas Bullock, while he was taking a Shabbos nap, we take our Shabbos nap, we're napping. He takes a Shabbos nap, his soul went to heaven. And he had such an experience. He says from the Torah that he heard that Shabbos afternoon in heaven, he says even 60, 70 years would not be enough to give over and to explain what he experienced, what he heard that Shabbat. Because when you're in heaven, what you hear in heaven, it's experience. Heaven is a different reality. When the soul is no longer tied to the body, there, what you hear, you experience. There, Shabbat to them, they experience Shabbat. We can go through our whole life, one Shabbat after another Shabbat after another Shabbat, and it's like, what is Shabbat? When Shabbat? Who Shabbat? What does it mean? What it's all about? There, the soul gets to experience Shabbat. And when you experience it, it's a whole different, whole different reality doesn't just talk about godliness. It experiences godliness. And that's the reward of the soul and the afterlife after 120 years. The result of studying Torah and doing mitzvot and doing Jewish things and doing godly things and holy things while we're alive in this world. That the soul gets the benefit from all that experience and gets to experience some of the godliness that the soul generated through, through the good deeds and the Torah study that, that it studied. You know, all those, today we read many cases of near-life, near-death experiences. The people, the soul started leaving the body and they all describe almost the same experience, like this brilliant light and it's indescribable and the soul is drawn towards it. Nothing in this world can come close to describe the ecstasy and the pleasure of pure experience. We are like so dulled. Our bodies are like so... It's almost taking like a three-dimensional reality and projecting it in a two-dimensional surface. What do you end up with? A cartoon. (laughs) Our feelings, our experiences, our understanding is like a cartoon in relation and comparison to real true experience. It's not limited and not bounded. It's pure experience. And that's what the soul, that's the meaning of Ganet, the meaning of Olam Haba, the world to come, that comes the afterlife, after life in this world. The pure pleasure and the pure ecstasy that the soul... And when you're having pure pleasure, it's like, you know, it's so pleasurable that you don't want to go anywhere. You, You... you're satisfied. You, you have everything that you need right here. It, you lose any sense of time. You lose any sense of... There's no sense of time. There's no sense of place. You're so lost in the pleasure. You're so absorbed in the pleasure. The experience can go on and on and on. And, and you know, here we're constantly distracted. We're constantly distracted. Because everything is so external. Everything is so superficial. We be, really experience real pleasure. So therefore we're constantly, okay, what's next? And what's next? And what's next? You know, we need constant entertainment, constant distraction. Because we're nowhere. We're not experiencing anything. We're just going, everything is so superficial and external and going through the motions. We're doing this, okay, so I should get there. And what, once I'm there, okay, now what's next? We never stop and experience anything. 
But in heaven, everything is an experience. Every experience is an end in itself. Is is so indescribable and so pleasurable. The difference is there are advantages to this world. What's the advantage of this world? <laughs> Seems like an all negative. What's the advantage? A, you can do mitzvahs here. You can't do mitzvahs there. Because whatever baggage you bring, that's it. That's all you have. It's like Shabbos. You can't cook on Shabbos. Whatever you've cooked, that's all you're going to eat the whole Shabbos. You can't cook. You can't sit well. I, I want to make a new dish. I'm sorry. So whatever you prepared, you're going to have. You'll have plenty to eat. But if you didn't, you're stuck. Nothing you can do. Whatever you've accumulated and accomplished in this lifetime, all the mitzvahs and all the Torah and all the selflessness and goodness, and that you take with you forever. But once, 120, you breathe your last, it's all over, finished. The marketplace is shut down. The market is closed. It's 4 o'clock. That's it. The market is closed. There's nothing more you can accomplish. Now you can derive benefit from it. All the benefit for eternal reward, eternal benefit, till Mashiach comes. You'll derive benefit and pleasure from all the Torah and all the mitzvot that you've done. There are souls sitting in thousands of years still deriving the pleasure and the benefit from the Torah and mitzvot that they've generated in their brief lifetime in this world. That's A. But B, in this world, we can talk about, since everything to us is abstract, so we can talk about such lofty levels that are so beyond us because even the smallest level is beyond us. So to us, you know, we may be discussing and talking about the deepest, the greatest levels. In heaven, you can't do that. In heaven, you can only experience whatever level, whatever, whatever level you're ready. But if you're not ready for that level, if, you, if you're not ready to receive it and to experience it, then whatever level you're at, you're totally at. You're present. You experience it, you live it, but therefore, in a way, it's limited. Because you're, you're limited. So whatever level you can absorb. But in this world, we can climb and we can, we can go places. We can talk about the highest levels that even the souls in the Garden of Eden can never truly experience. So that's the advantage of this world. But nevertheless, what we do try is try to and that's what Hasidus came and accomplished, is A, for us to realize that there is such a thing as mahus, there is such a thing as experience, there is such a thing as reality. Godliness is real, holiness is real, spirituality is real, soul is real. And somewhat we should get a taste of the pleasure, of the ecstasy and the pleasure of experiencing God. But how is it possible for us to experience godliness? We're so superficial. We're constructed that way. Our conscious levels is so limited. It's all external. So how is it possible for us to really truly experience something on a soul level? The only opportunity that we have to experience something is in prayer. That's why prayer to us is so important especially in Hasidic teachings, especially in Chabad Hasidic. Because prayer is the only opportunity we have to truly experience. It's the only opportunity you have to get out of your ego, put your ego on the side, and allow your neshama, allow that faith to emerge and to experience your neshama, experience that faith, experience that relationship with Hashem. 
but there are no shortcuts. It takes time. You have to work at it. Prayer is called avoida. Avoida means it's, it's work. You have to roll up your sleeves, it's work. It's not something that happens spontaneously or instinctively. It's something you really have to firstly remove all distractions. You have to really get into the prayer. You have to study before and meditate and reflect. But then, hopefully, at least on some level, the words come alive. When you say, I love Hashem, you actually experience it. I love Hashem. And all the words of the prayer slowly but surely come alive. This godly reality comes alive for you, which gives you the strength for the rest of the day to lead a Jewish life, to think like a Jew and act like a Jew and speak like a Jew 24-7. But that's the closest we get during prayer to experience. And prayer, as we learned in the previous letters, prayer is like the Shabbat. Just like the Shabbat is the Shabbos of the week. Because all week round we're, we're busy with the external, we're creating. We're, but Shabbos we get to experience. Shabbos is pure experience. It's about living, experiencing. You remove yourself, withdraw from the external, and you totally focus on the soul, on the inner. Shabbos, the whole world is drawn inward. The whole world is elevated to its inwardness, to its inner self, to, to that experience. And every day we get a taste of Shabbat during prayer. That's why the morning prayer is so long. If prayer was just about asking for your needs, even if you have a long list, a laundry list, five minutes at the most, prayer takes an hour. What do you, Hashem, I need this and this, hello. Thank you, God. I need this and this and this. Thank you, have a wonderful day, and I'll see you tomorrow. Why, why, why this long introduction and long... Because prayer is not just about asking for our needs. Prayer is about connecting, it's about experiencing, it's about recharging, rejuvenating. So firstly, to know that there is such a thing as mohus. There is such a thing as experiencing God. A person can go through his whole life and know the whole Talmud inside out, and he doesn't even have a clue. He doesn't even know that there's such a thing as godliness. Everything is external, everything is superficial, everything is harsh, and it, it's, it's all about brains and logic and rational, but that's external, that's surface. That doesn't allow us to experience. You have to get beyond that to realize that there's a whole world that's beyond the surface, that's beyond our ego, logical, rational mind. There's a whole reality of pure soul, pure experience, where the intellect not only understands godliness, but the intellect and the soul in heaven actually experiences godliness. It becomes a reality. And that's why the pleasure, the ecstasy is indescribable. There are no words in this world. There's, no, there's nothing we can experience in this world that comes close. Even if a person lived like King Solomon, and he had all the pleasures of the world and lived for a thousand years. It's all nothing insignificant in comparison to the pleasure that the soul experiences in heaven from understanding and, and experiencing godliness. So A, to know that there is such a reality, even though we're in this world, but to realize that there's a whole reality beyond us. 
you know, if you learn Talmud and the ox gores, the previous Rebbe says, and the ox gores the, gores the cow, and if you just take it on face value, and there's no deeper meaning, and there's no, then you are the ox. If you don't appreciate and you don't realize it, there's a whole reality. It's so beyond our comprehension that we are like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We're just the most superficial, external. That there is such a thing as godliness. And that godliness is a reality. For the soul, godliness is a reality. Even though we don't sense it and we don't feel it. It doesn't change how the soul feels and what the soul knows. The soul knows Hashem with every fiber of his being and every bone in his body. And so A, to know that there is such a reality, and B, that, that even while we're alive, we can get a little taste of it during prayer. But primarily, this is, this is the experience of the soul after 120 years. This is Olam Hava, the world to come, the world that comes, the afterlife, afterlife in this world. So there, the soul not only understands, because in this world we also understand, but we understand we can't get beyond our, the parable, we can't get beyond our material mindset. You know, we're trapped in our material mindset, so it's very hard for us to relate to godliness, and to holiness, and to spirituality. But in the afterlife, after 120 years, this is the reward of the soul who studied Torah and did mitzvot, did godly things while the soul was alive, that they get to experience godliness. They understand it, and not only do they understand it, but they actually, that's what the rabbis say, nenin miziva shechina. They derive pleasure from the light of the shechina. We also understand, but we can't derive pleasure from the light of the shechina. We don't experience that light. We can talk about it. We can study it. We can even know it. But we can't derive pleasure from that light because we can't experience it directly. We're trapped in the body. We're trapped in the ego mind, an ego rational mind, which is very external, very superficial. And it's just based on the five senses. It's... But the soul in heaven gets to benefit and derive pleasure from the ray of God's light actually experience the light, experience the infinite light, get a taste. And the soul will do anything just to be able to have one moment of that pleasure, one moment of that experience. The soul will do anything because the pleasure is so <coughs> indescribable. There's nothing we, can, we even have that even comes close, that could compare. So this is the meaning of Olam Haba. So it is a contradiction. On one hand, you say that you understand. Where do you derive pleasure from? From your understanding. When you understand something very well, you derive pleasure. But the soul is finite. When you understand something, you grasp something. That means it's, it's a finite, limited understanding. But that's the novelty of Olam Haba, of Gan Eden. That although the soul is able to understand and absorb... But paradoxically, the soul is able to benefit and enjoy and sense directly the divine light. So it's not just the understanding, the logical understanding, but the soul is able to grasp and encounter and experience the godliness. 
And that gives the soul tremendous pleasure. So it's not, it's not, it's, it's from the understanding, but it's not just the understanding. It's the experience. And that's really beyond understanding. So in a way, it's, it's, it's a paradox, it's a combination. The soul understands and grasps something that's really beyond understanding and beyond grasp. Because the soul is understanding and grasping the infinite. Hashem's light. Hashem is infinite. How can a finite soul grasp the infinite? But that's the paradox of the Garden of Eden. That the soul is able to grasp and absorb something that's really beyond grasping. The infinite light. Hashem himself. Hashem's light. And, and experience it and encounter it. And that's why the pleasure is indescribable. But that the soul could only do in the afterlife, in the world to come. As we just read over the holiday, the reading in the Torah, that Hashem tells Moshe, for you to see me, my face, you couldn't live. You can't remain a soul in a body. See Hashem and remain a soul in a body. That's what everyone experiences right before they pass away. And you read the descriptions of many people pass away. Suddenly they open their eyes and they breathe their last. Like they open their eyes like startled. Because they see Hashem. They see Hashem's light. Which they can't see while they're alive. And when they see Hashem's light, that's it. Their soul leaves. And at that moment, their whole life flashes before them. And at that moment, they either regret the foolishness of what occupied most of their mind and engaged them, realizing that the whole life was wasted in Narishkeit, foolishness, or they have something to show for their life. They did Torah, did mitzvah, did godly things, Jewish things, real things, things that really matter, where it really counts at the end of the day. Um, But that's the experience. But this is something that the soul experiences. This is the paradox. And in the afterlife, after a person dies, the soul gets to experience, to understand and grasp, but to understand and grasp and experience something that's really beyond understanding and beyond grasp. Hashem's infinite light. And the pleasure is just simply indescribable. And uh, they have a different sense of time, they have a different sense of everything, different sense of reality. So that each and every one can understand and attain some perception according to his level and his deeds. So he says according to two things, according to his level and according to his deeds. So we're going to read that, that I believe Yitzhak, the Rebbe's father, explains every, everything is very precise in the Tanya. Uh, that the Rebbe here is referring to there are two levels of the Garden of Eden. There's a lower level of the Garden of Eden and there's the higher level of the Garden of Eden. Lower level of the Garden of Eden is the pleasure that the soul receives as a result of all the good deeds that it has done, depending on the good deeds, how many good deeds it did, what type of good deeds. And that's what gives the pleasure to the soul in the lower level. The higher level of Garden of Eden derives from those who did the mitzvah, not just did the mitzvah, but did it with heart and soul, poured the heart and soul into the mitzvah did it from the depth of their heart and the depth of their being, the purity of the heart. So that depends on the level, depends on the input, depends on what they, what they invested in the mitzvah. So depending on their level, on the level of their service, the mitzvah, they all did the mitzvah, but 
but the quality, how they did the mitzvah, the kavana, the intent, the joy, the, the, the love, the passion, the engagement, the sincerity, so that, all that's different levels. It all depends on the level of the individual. So based on that, you have the different levels of ganed. Because everyone has their own personal, customized ganed. Everyone has their own level of, of reward, of pleasure. Totally dependent. It's like your bank account. Whatever you put into your bank account, that's what you're going to live off. Everyone has their own personal account. And, and uh, whatever we put in, so the, those, most majority of souls enter into the lower level of Ganeid. But those very special souls who serve Hashem with all their heart and all their soul, not just they do the mitzvah, but they do it with intent, they do it with feeling, and they do it with passion. So they go to the higher level of Ganeid. So depending on whatever level they've achieved in their life, in this life, that's the level of the reward, that's the level of the revelation of godliness that they will personally experience in the afterlife. Everything in this world is given. All the opportunities are given. The opportunities are there for us to take. It's a free-for-all. Torah was given in the desert. It's a free-for-all. It's open to anyone. Whatever level you're going to put in, that's how much you're going to rise. You rise to the occasion, and you will... But it's yours for the taking. Who becomes the leader? There's no superficial hierarchy. Whoever invests the most, and whoever is the most sincere, and whoever is the deepest, and the truest, and exerts himself the most, and takes it to heart, and takes it seriously, and opens himself up the most, that's the person who will rise the most. So all the opportunities are there, but whatever we... Whatever we invest and whatever we have the wisdom to invest, then that soul will derive the pleasure accordingly in Olam Haba and the Ganeden in the afterlife. Mikutay Levi Yitzchak, authored by the saintly father of the Rebbe Shlita, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Shneerson, explains the distinction between his level and his deeds as follows. His level alludes to those souls which are to be found in the upper garden of Eden whose comprehension is commensurate with the level of their devout intent and the level of their the desire of the heart. The unbounding yearning of the innermost point of their souls to cleave rapturously to their maker. This state of divine service results from intellectual endeavor, which is denoted by the term level. In chapter 9 of Shara Yehud, by Enunah, for example, the Alta Rebbe adds this term to the phrase that speaks of the intellectual activity known by its acronym as Chabad. His deeds, by contrast, refers to those souls in the lower Garden of Eden, which earn the above-described spiritual delights with the actual performance of practical mitzvot. These souls, therefore, are rewarded according to their deeds. In either case, it is clear that the delight that souls experience in Gan Eden is the intellectual delight of the apprehension of godliness. That is why in the Zohar, the world to come is referred to as Bina, understanding. For that world is permeated by the light of the sphere of Bina, which enables souls to apprehend and understand godliness. Because the only way to really derive pleasure is when you fully understand something. When, you, um, when you're able to grasp it, when, you know, then you can relate to it, then you can connect with it. Something that you can't really grasp doesn't give you true pleasure. Um, when you innovate, innovation gives a person true pleasure. 
But the revelation of pleasure is the more something is revealed to you, the more you fully, fully understand it. When you master something, when you fully master the subject matter, let's say it's a difficult subject matter, and you fully, finally mastered it, and you get it, and you understand it, that's what gives you tremendous pleasure. You know, as, when you're still in the middle and studying it and learning it and trying to understand it and it's still uh, very vague, then it doesn't give you full measure of pleasure. So, Ilam Haba, which is the world of pleasure, pleasure comes from understanding. This flourish is from the plane of supernal Chachma, which is the source of the conception and apprehension known as Bina. Chachma is the initial, intuitive, seminal flash of perception. Bina is, is the process of mental gestation that systematically develops and expands that inspiration into comprehensive understanding. For Chachma is the primordial stage of the intellect before apprehension and understanding become math. Usually when we talk about Chachma and Bina, as in the third chapter of the Tanya, Lessons in Tanya.com, first part of Tanya, the Chachma is when you're studying something, something you find very difficult, you're trying to figure it out, then you're frustrated. And then suddenly you have this bolt, this bolt of lightning, this brilliant flash, it comes to you. You, have, you start formulating some sort of answer. It's still just very vague. You still can't articulate it, even to yourself. It's just a, but you already see the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I'm getting an idea how... I'm finding my way out, I'm, I'm getting the answer, it's, and it's a tremendous satisfaction, and that breakthrough, and that revelation. Something comes to you that you get, you get the answer, but it's still very vague and unclear. And then comes Bina, we articulate it, and you spell it out, and you flesh it out, and you build it until, from the seed, you develop a whole structure, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, an introduction... But here, we're discussing a much deeper level of Chachma. Because when you have this general sense, it is an intellectual understanding. You do understand it. It's just vague. It's, it's general. It's fuzzy. But you do have some understanding. It just, it's underdeveloped. I haven't yet had a chance to develop it. It's like a flash. Like Sometimes you wake up and you still remember the impression of the dream and you're trying to hang on to it because it can easily fade away, fade away from your memory. So you hang on to that flash, that impression that you have and then if you're able to hold on to it and then you develop it and then you remind yourself of everything that you dreamt of. So you, you, you st- it's underdeveloped. I, I have the kernel, I have the idea and now I just have to flesh it out. But everything is contained in this, in this general feeling, in this general sense. That's, that's the general level of Chachma. Here... We're talking about the essence of Chachma, which is really, it's really our window to our soul, our subconscious. It totally transcends logic, the ego mind, the rational mind. And it's really all about, it's about, it's about experiencing. It's about not just knowing whether you know it in a flash or you know it in a fully developed way. It, it, it's that direct experiencing. It's like something stirring on the inside, something stirring in your soul. When something shifts inside of you and there's a, a, a communique from your subconscious, it's, 
it's a whole different reality. It's a whole different way of knowing, of experiencing. Of, it's not just knowing abstract, intellectual. It's a direct knowledge. It's a knowledge where you experience it. And, and you know, it's a very deep type of knowledge, a very deep down way of knowing. And it's something that many people experience occasionally without even realizing it. Very few people experience it deliberately and consciously because it's something that comes from a very deep place inside of us. There's like this inner stirring where you just experience and you know it not just with your mind, you just know it with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. You just, when you recognize something and you know something and it's as if you've always known it, it just like emerges and say, of course, a deep truth that you've always known in your kishkis, but and it just emerges with the full force of like a, this powerful revelation where you physically like jump back so it, that's a direct experience. That's, that's not, not just a abstract knowledge. Abstract knowledge is, could be interesting, but it doesn't evoke a personal response. It doesn't get the same reaction. It's interesting information, very interesting information, very exciting information, but it's not personal. This is almost personal. It's, 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 it stirs, something stirs very deep inside of you and it touches you. and It's a, a communication from your subconscious. That is really the essence of Chachma. And it transcends the, the ego mind, the rational mind. You know, all the understanding in the world just, just scratches the surface. And the proof is it doesn't evoke any personal response. You can be, you can be brilliant, you can know a lot of information, it doesn't change you, <laughs> it doesn't affect you, it doesn't move you. Doesn't inspire you. It doesn't stir you. It doesn't. Nothing shifts inside. Nothing changes inside. So it's, that's ego, rational mind. You can you can stuff your mind with a lot of information. The disc may have like a disc. You're just stuffing a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. But just like the shelves, what does the shelf benefit from all the books sitting on the shelf? There's no connection between the shelf and the books and all that brilliant and wisdom that's sitting on the shelf. There's no connection between the disc and all the brilliance that's sitting on the disc. Today, one disc could hold a <laughs> MP, MPR, MP3, could hold a whole library. What's the connection between the disc and the information that's stored in that? All that brilliance and wisdom, nothing. So there are walking encyclopedias. What's the connection between them personally and all the information they have? Nothing. Are they better people? Are they finer people? Are they more egoless? Are they kinder people, gentler people? more godly, more truthful, more genuine, more honest. One has nothing to do with the other. On the contrary, all that brilliance has become even more arrogant, become even more impossible, more inhumane, if anything. Impossible. So, this is external knowledge. Chachma is a very personal, direct, experiential type of knowledge that comes directly from your soul. It's a direct experience. And it's dazzling. And it's unpredictable. Because all, you, can, you can think something for a thousand years and you may never come to the realization and conclusion what Chachma gives you. Chachma is a direct experiential. Once you experience it directly, 
it's so brilliant and dazzling and so beyond anything that you can think of logically. You'll never come to this conclusion by thinking logically, even for a thousand years. Because it, it's, it's a whole different dimension of knowing. It's a whole different way of knowing. It's a whole different dimension. It's a knowledge that incorporates thousands, millions, trillions of things all at once, simultaneously. It's a whole different, a whole different way of knowing and experiencing. It's like a direct communication from the soul. Before the soul is trapped in our conscious, imprisoned in our conscious self, which is very limited and limiting. But it's like a pure experience of the soul. And the soul, we know even from the human body, subconscious, how dazzling the soul is. You know how complex the human body is? We're made up of, every one of us is made up of 100 trillion cells. Try to wrap your mind around that number. 100 trillion cells. That's even greater than our national debt. <laughs> 100 trillion cells. Every one of us. And it all happens simultaneously. All this complexity is happening in one split second. And this all happens sub- un- unselfconsciously. Our subconscious, it all happens. It, it's... Our logical mind, I mean, if we count to a thousand, it's already a whole feat. Counting to a million, a hundred trillion in one second, simultaneously, once per second, it's a whole different dimension, a whole different dimension of knowing, experiencing. It's so beyond our, our finite, limited, conscious world, our whole world, our whole universe, our conscious self. It's so limited and limiting. It's, it's almost a, a cartoon uh, uh, in reflection in, in relation to ultimate reality, our subconscious level of experiencing reality. And that's the true level of Chach. True level of Chach, it's the window to the soul. It's that, that, that flash or that communication that comes from directly from our souls, that direct experience, direct revelation that's so unexpected and takes us by surprise. And it's not just intellectual. We feel it physically with every fiber of our being, every bone of our body. Something stirs inside of us. And it's so wondrous and so beyond anything we would ever be able to figure out, no matter how brilliant we are. Anything we would ever, ever be able to figure out logically and rationally. And that's why you find many brilliant people. And they can talk you to death. But they're off the point. They're like missing the point. They, they never... They're off on the side. And with their brilliance, they just camouflage the fact that they're totally off. They miss the whole point. They don't really get it. They don't have that truth. Truth is not brilliance. Brilliance, you can talk and talk and you can build castles in the air, but it's, it's off. It's not, it's not genuine. It's not to the point. Truth, genuineness, the point is something that, that comes from the soul. That's a direct experience. It has nothing to do with brilliance. It has everything to do with egolessness. Brilliance is very egotistical. I understand, and I am the master, and I'll figure it out, and I'm the brilliant one. If you have any doubts, I'll be the first one to tell you. That's brilliant. Chachma is all about egolessness. The creative person, the creative genius, his genius is that he forgets about himself, and he's open to receive. And that's why the revelations that the creative person receives is wondrous. He's able to see things in new ways, in ways that you'll never 
figure it out in a thousand years logically, you would never, it's like startling. The revelation is a new way of looking at it that you would never in a million years ever think of. Because you can't think your way towards pure experience. It's, you have to get your ego out of the way and allow the depth of your neshama to emerge to the surface. So this is the level of Chachma that he's talking about here. And it's this level of Chachma that really transcends intellect and logic and the rational mind. This is the level of Chachma that's revealed to the soul in Gan Eden. In Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, the world to come in the afterlife, the soul experiences godliness. It's not just intellect. It's not just brilliance and logic and rational. In that brilliance and in that grasping and in that logic and in that understanding, the soul actually gets to experience godliness. And as we're going to learn later, it's almost like a paradox because you have that combination of logic and something that's beyond logic. It's like the combination of the right brain and the left brain together. Usually people, uh, people have right brains, people are predominantly left brain, people are predominantly logical and rational and verbal, people are predominantly intuitive, creative, right brain. But here you have this wondrous combination of the right brain and the left brain, which is miraculous, it's incredible in itself. And then, and then you, you, you are able to experience in a, in a very wonderful way, you're able to experience, experience grasp godliness and experience it. So this is, this is, in general, this is the world of Gan Eden, Elam Haba, where they have the revelation of the of Chachma, even though Olam Haba is Bina, understanding, because all pleasure comes from understanding. But it's not just understanding. Understanding alone wouldn't explain the indescribable pleasure and ecstasy that the soul feels. It's what they're grasping, their understanding is really the Chachma, and the highest level of Chachma, the essence of Chachma, which is a level that totally transcends the ego mind and the rational it's totally beyond it. It's pure experience. And this is why the soul experiences godliness. The infinite light is able to derive pleasure from, from the infinite light. Rather, Chachma at this stage is still in a state of obscurity and concealment. The Alter Rebbe is speaking here of a particular level of Chachma that transcends intellect and comprehension. It differs from the more external level of Chachma, which is the germ of intellect, and is already illumined illumined by it, though it too is as yet the unparticularized seminal point of a concept, which is still to be analyzed and comprehended by the faculty of Bina. Preceding this, the primordial level of Chachma, discussed here, utterly transcends revealed insight. It is still obscure, except for those minuscule measure that here and there flows forth and issues from it to the faculty of Bina. The dual form of the biblical idiom borrowed here implies that the light of the primordial level of Chachma undergoes two distinct stages of symptom or self-contraction. The first stage limits this light, the second attenuates it so that it is able to descend into Bina. 
maybe one way for people to relate to this idea of chachma it's like what psychologists call like a, a flow moment when, when a person is so absorbed in what he's doing and you become so in tune with what you're doing that you lose any sense of self, you lose any sense of time, you lose any sense of space. You can forget where you are, you forget about yourself and you just become in the zone. You're like so one with whatever you're doing that you, you become it. It's like you become the experience and there's no separation. There's no distinction. There's no separation. There's no ego. You become completely unified and egoless and, and in a state of unity and then you can accomplish you know, like a peak experience. You can accomplish things. All the many great athletes or great people, like when they get into that place or they try to get into that zone and the things you can do are so beyond your ordinary self. So that's like some way of experiencing, when pure experience when you're like on the highest level but there's no separation and no ego. And then from there, then you bring it down to the level of understanding, logic, where there is already a separation. You're already in your conscious world. You're already descending from that lofty level where you're completely uh, lost and there's no sense of I, no sense of ego, no sense of self. And then you're coming into the world of conscious, into your conscious self. And then from that conscious self then you start working your way down. Chachma is the origin. Chachma is the germ, is the seminal point, is the seed, the beginning of consciousness. And everything else follows. And from there, it comes down to the level of understanding. And from there, it continues on. So he's, that's what he says, a little here and a little there. So he's referring to the, uh, the two steps that you have to get from pure Chachma, pure experience, pure... It's totally beyond our ordinary conscious level self. It, it doesn't happen naturally or too often that we're in that peak flow experience. It's, it's, it's a very rare event. It's an event that we'll never forget because when we're experiencing it, it's wow. It's something that's so beyond, so extraordinary, so refreshing actually to go beyond your ego and to be completely one with with what you're doing and it's um, it's that rare experience but then to take back from that experience and then to bring it down into your conscious self so that's the first level and the conscious self also begins with just a general vague idea you haven't yet developed it you haven't yet articulated it and then you take it to the next level where you begin to develop it and articulate it and explain it and build a whole structure so that's what he says, from the prime, primary level of Chachma, the primordial level of Chachma, the true essence of Chachma, then a little here and a little there trickles down into the conscious self, into the level of Bina, into the level of understanding. Making it possible for a soul to understand and apprehend a concept which is intrinsically concealed. This higher form of supernal intellect is the radiance of the Shekinah. Array of God's infinite that illuminates Ganeda. Ordinarily, no created being, even a soul of such stature, that it inhabits the upper Ganeda and could possibly fathom this degree of intellect. In order for it to be understood by mortal man's soul, it must undergo the twofold descent mentioned above. Nonetheless, even after this descent, it still pertains to the very essence, Mahut, of godliness that is comprehended by the soul in Ganeda. is the that or point of intellect that illumines the palace of Bina. 
Nevertheless, even when already housed in Vienna, it still remains a seminal point of interest that transcends the details that constitute the comprehension of Vienna. So this is what the Zohar says. There's a point and there's a palace. A palace is expensive. A palace is a huge room. It has length. It has width. It has height. Then you have a point. A dot. A point. And not only aren't they mutually exclusive, but here you have the point together with the palace. The point refers to Chachma, pure Chachma, which is the point, which is the point of truth. And then you have Hegel. Hegel is logic, rational, which is expensive. You explain it, you understand it. The person who's articulate, the person who's brilliant in that way. And many times one has nothing to do with the other. You have people who are very brilliant, but they're missing their point. <laughs> there's no emes, there's no... You know, sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it, sometimes it's intangible, but it's, you know, they don't mean what they say and they don't say what they mean and they don't hold by what they're, they're saying and they don't live it, they don't experience it. It's, it's brilliant. Politicians. Politicians is a different category altogether. <laughs> I'm not talking about lying. We're talking about, <laughs> We're talking about uh, brilliant logic, but it's external, it's superficial. You can pontificate and explain and understand it, and yet it doesn't change you. It doesn't affect you. You remain the same person you were before and after. So you could talk about all these wonderful things, and not mean a word you say. You don't hold by it, you don't live it, you don't mean it, you're not... It's brilliant, and you can explain it brilliantly, but it's like, it's like there's no connection. It's impersonal. It's soulless in a real way, because it's impersonal. But what are you talking about? Something you don't live it, you don't mean it, you're not trying to live it. You know, this genuineness, the sincerity is not there. You can have brilliance. So you have the Hegel, you have a palace, but there's no point. There's no center. There's no evidence. Then you have the person, maybe he's not so brilliant. Maybe not as brilliant, or brilliant in a different way. But their brilliance is that they, everything they talk about, they experience. They don't just talk about things that don't mean anything to them. It's genuine. It's genuine. Everything they talk about, they care about what they're talking about. They personally care. And try to live it, and, and, and live up to it, and personalize it, and try to... That's the point. The point is, that's the experience. It's not just talking, it's experiencing. Judaism is not just something you talk about. Judaism is something you have to experience. You have to live it. It's called Torah's Chayim. It's a living Torah. It's not just words, nice words, nice inspiring words. Torah is life. It's reality. It's experiencing it. It's meaning it. It's that genuineness. So in many cases, the two are two separate people. You have the palace and you have the point. And the twain shall not meet. It's very rare to find a combination of brilliance, articulate, being able to put into words, and at the same time, being in touch with something that's beyond words. Experience. And this is what the Zohar is talking about, and this is so wondrous. To be able to articulate the inarticulate. 
to be able to define the undefined, to put into words something that's indescribable, that you can't put into words. You're talking about the infinite light, you're talking about Hashem, you're talking about godliness. To be able to put into words something that inherently you can't put into words. This is Nekudah Beichala. This is something special. This is something godly. This is what Alter Rebbe did. This is what Chabad is all about. It's taking faith, taking godliness, and bringing it down and putting it into words, into Chachman, into Bin, into Das, putting it into wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. To articulate. But what are you articulating? Articulate the inarticulate. To capture in words experiences and feelings that are really beyond words. Pure faith, pure godliness. But to put it into words. And that's a very special combination. Because when you're able to put into words something that's really beyond words, you, you, you marry the two worlds. You marry the world of intellect and the world of Chachma and the world of Bina, the world of the point and the world. Because experience without words ultimately there's something lacking. And a lot of mysticism, the Eastern mysticism, is all based on pure going beyond words, meditating and just going beyond words. Becoming silent, meditating, until you escape the trap of words and ego and just go to a, word, a, world, a wordless place. But that's, that's very limiting. As we're going to learn later in this unbelievable letter, that actually words come from a very deep place. Words are not superficial. The Eastern mystics completely missed the whole point. Words are not superficial. Words come, come from the, are the most deep-rooted, are deep-rooted in the soul and come from the unselfconscious, come from subconscious. Words come from a very profound place. So if you can't put it into words, if you just have pure experience and you can't articulate it, it's not just you're missing a detail. Ultimately, you haven't really achieved the ultimate experience. If you're able to achieve the ultimate experience, if you're able to really access the soul, you're able to find words. But these are not regular words. These are words that stir the soul. It's like poetry. You can say the same thing and it falls flat. You know, four score, what's, what's Lincoln's famous speech? Yeah, four score and... Seven years. What? Four score and seven years. Right. He could have, if he would have said 47 years, <laughs> it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do it, you know. But if you find the right words, the poet finds the right words, you say the same thing and you say it, and suddenly it, your soul is on fire and it stirs up your kishkis and soul. There are words and there are words. Words usually fall flat. We live in a world that's overdose of words. We're drowning in words. But there's no light. And there's no soul. But imagine if you find words. Words that sear your soul, touch your soul, moves you, inspires you. So it's that perfect combination. It's marrying words. You're articulating, but you're articulating things that are beyond words. That's the kudah the point, but bringing the point together in the palace. 
this is something wondrous. This is something divine. This is something godly. This is something... That's what the soul experiences in Ganeden in Ilam Haba. It understands, it grasps in words, it understands godliness, but it's understanding and it's experiencing. At the same time, it's experiencing something, the infinite, Hashem's light, which is infinite and beyond words and beyond. It's bringing the two together. Articulating the inarticulate, defining the inner. And that's pleasure is indescribable. To be able to have this combination is really indescribable. To find a person alive like that is almost very rare. But again, everything we're learning here is something to aspire to. It's something we aspire to. And these are the words of Torah. Torah is like that. Torah is words. What's the difference between the words of Torah and all the other books in the secular library of philosophy and, and ethics and wisdom? Because those words fall flat. But Torah is like the poetry of life. These words capture the infinite, capture Hashem. These are words that sear into your soul, stir your soul, elevates you, touches you, inspires you, moves you. It's capturing the infinite. These are words that are able to capture the infinite. And the way of life, the Jewish way of life, Torah mitzvah. It's actions. These are actions that touch you deeply, that stir something inside of you. That It's that combination of the kudah behechola, of that point. And that's the quality of emes. That's the nature of emes. That's the nature of ultimate truth. Chachma is emes. It says Moshe saw, saw the attribute of truth and he immediately bowed down. What is truth? People can talk about something and talk about something. But then, when you meet a real person who lives it and is experiencing it, you just bow down. When you see truth, you just bow down. That's why Hasidim go to a Rebbe. There are many brilliant Hasidim, and they study Torah, and they understand a lot. But for us, we learn it, we understand it, we can talk about it, we can explain it, but it's all words. The Rebbe is emes. He lives it. To him, it's not words. He's experiencing. The Torah is alive to him. Hashem is alive to him. Code of Jewish law is alive to him. It's a reality. When he talks about it, it's like real. It comes alive. And it hits us how real this is. That this is not just rituals, customs. This is as real as it gets. Our Jewishness, Torah, Hashem, our relationship, our connection. So this is emes. This is the quality of emes. It's, this is the quality of chachma. The essence of chachma. It's that window to the soul. It's that pure experiencing. It's, and this is what keeps us honest. It's that point. And without that, you can have a person who's very talented and very brilliant, but they're off. Because if you don't have that point to keep you honest, you just, you just, you get sidetracked. It's like that famous story, and we'll conclude, and then we'll continue next week, and we'll open for questions in a few minutes. The um, famous story, there was this world-class archer who uh, was traveling in Italy, and he noticed in the suburb, suburb of Rome, he noticed this uh, archer. He saw the line where the line was drawn. He saw the distance of, you know, where the arrows hit the targets. And it was like 50 out of 50, bullseye. 
and he was the world champion and he couldn't do it from that distance. So he got excited. Finally, I met my master. I met someone who way surpasses me. He goes into town. He says, who is this master archer? He says, ah, this 14-year-old kid. Okay, listen, 14-year-old, but who cares? He's a, he's a genius. I mean, he goes over to this 14-year-old kid. He says, master, teacher, please teach me. How do you do this? How is this possible? The kid smiles. It's very simple. He says, first I shoot. And then I drew, I, I drew the line. <laughs> Bullseye every time. 50 out of 50. So the circle is like intellect. Brilliant. The Nazis were brilliant. Germany, the seat of university. They knew how to make a gas very well. Where does that brilliance get you? Who are the biggest anti-Semites today against Israel, the Jew of the world, this whole BDS movement, are rooted in the university? So-called pseudo-intellectuals, the most corrupt, the most hypocritical, the most evil, pernicious evil in the world today. Singling out the Jew for criticism. Millions of Arabs, hundreds of Arabs, thousands of Arabs, butchered by the day. Who cares? A Jew builds a bedroom in Jerusalem. The, 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 the total hypocrisy and evil. So what is brilliance? Brilliance means nothing. All that brilliance. If you can't see the difference between a culture of death and a culture of life, and instead of celebrating the culture of life and honoring the culture of life, you honor and celebrate the culture of death and you condemn the culture of life, you choose these Arab murderers and terrorists over the Jews, okay, so then you, you have the soul of a murderer. We just want that brilliance get you. Nothing. It's a circle without a point. There's no emiss. There's nothing to keep you honest. There's no truth. There's no genuineness. It's all lies. It's such a lie that even any five-year-old child could expose the lie. What would happen if all the Arab armies took a vacation, a year's vacation? What would happen? Ask anyone in the world what would happen. They'll tell you nothing. <laughs> what would happen if the Israeli army took one day's vacation? There would be no Israel. So who's at war and who's at peace? Who's the enemy and who's the friend? Who's the bad guy and who's the good guy? Which, which twisted mind could twist reality so to make the Jews the bad people? Those Arabs make the worst Jew in the world look like a saint by comparison. Mothers who praise their children for blowing up men, women, and children. And this is what these professors are defending and, and fighting for. They're souls. There's no point. There's no emiss. There's no truth. All there is are lies. All that brilliance, where did it get them? Nothing. They have the souls of Nazis. Rationalized murder and suicide, that's all. Intellectually rationalizing and excusing murder. You have to have that point. If you have that point, it keeps you honest. When you have that point and you have that faith, then you make the circle around, 50 out of 50 you get bullseye. The Torah will always keep us honest. Any subject, any issue that comes up, the Torah... The same Torah tells us to be kind. We're the kindest people in the world. The same Torah tells you, take a gun and shoot and kill if someone is, is endangering life. You have to know the truth. Every situation has, a different, has how truth is expressed in that situation. So the Torah keeps us honest and keeps us truthful and keeps us to the point in every situation that comes up because we have a point. All the brilliance in the world, it's centered and focused. It's the combination of Chachma and Bina. That's a rare combination. 
the right brain and the left brain, east and west, faith and, and, and mind, and the logical mind, body and soul. This is the unique uniqueness of the Jewish contribution. It's marrying, merging heaven and earth. It's bringing opposites together, reconciling what appear to be opposites and revealing that it's really, they enhance each other, they amplify each other, and they're really all one. This is the point in the palace. This is what the soul who lived the Jewish life, who studied Torah, who did mitzvot, who did godly and divine things, this is the pleasure, this is the benefit, the reward that they get, is that they have a godly experience, they're able to combine the point with the palace. The pleasure that comes from understanding and grasping, articulating, but what are they grasping? That pure experience of infinite, of Hashem's ray, of Hashem's light, and they're able to grasp the ungraspable, they're able to articulate the inarticulate, they're able to define the undefinable. This is Ganeidin. So now that we know what Ganeidin is, <laughs> now we know the world to come, the souls, what the souls are experiencing in the afterlife, what our loved ones and our ancestors are experiencing in the afterlife. He says, and this all comes from you, and then will to be continued. Before we conclude, anyone has a question, comment, a thought? Somebody just asked me two weeks ago in the Shimon Esri about Chokhmah being Right. He asked me, translate what Chokhmah means. So I just very simply said wisdom. He says, are you kidding me? Wisdom? There's so much more to it. But I don't understand that. The word Bina, could you... Yes. Bina literally in Hebrew means to build. It's like a structure. Yeah, it means understanding. Remember the, the root, bone. Bone is building, because when you, it's like it's like uh, the architect has an idea, has a concept. Chachma is like making the drawings, putting the concept. But bina is the actual building, <laughs> building the structure. When you flesh out the structure, you take the concept and then you actually build it. You see the rooms, you see the in the foyer, and you see the front room and the second room and the half floor. And lo- suddenly, you see everything fleshed out. That's Bina. Bina is, is, is analysis, comprehension, analyze, to comprehend, to put into words. You can have a person who's brilliant, who's very creative, but they don't have, they can't explain it. Then you have a person who doesn't have a creative bone in his body, but give him a concept and they'll articulate it. You know how many inventors, creators died impoverished? You know, the, the McDonald brothers, <laughs> they sold it for pennies. You know who America is named after? Mariego. You know who discovered America? Columbus. And he died in jail. <laughs> and Mariego was smart enough to go to town. He took Columbus's discovery and he went to town. He got all the credit. They're brilliant business people don't have a single creative bone in their body. But there's this creative genius who comes up with these genius ideas, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't, re- doesn't appreciate himself the brilliance of what he, uh, he, uh, he created. Someone comes and pays him pennies, buys it off, and goes to town with it. So it's a different quality. This is Bina. Bina is analyzing, understanding, fleshing it out, articulating it. And then you're able to communicate, you're able to explain it. If you understand it well, you grasp it, then you're able, you can bring details, specific and details. So the builder has to, the engineer, it's like the engineering. The architect is the creative genius. He has a concept, he has a vision, he has a picture. He puts it on paper, but you can't live in that. You can't live in that paper. So you have to build a building. Then the engineer has to spell it out, and he has to 
everything has its place, and the wires, and the, the pipes, and everything has to... Then you see, suddenly you see a structure, you see a palace, you see a whole structure. So it's, it's a different type of genius to, to be able to articulate and grasp. And only then do you really have pleasure. You can benefit, you derive benefit from it when you actually... And then comes Das. Das is, once you have the structure, then you have to furnish it. <laughs> it's the finishings. You have to furnish it. What kind of wallpaper, what kind of couch. The atmosphere, it's, it's the feeling for it. I can have brilliance, but there's no feel for it. It's like a difference between the professor of economics, who never earned a dollar in his life, in business, versus the businessman talking about business. The businessman lives it, breathes it, he put his life savings on the line, he, he lived it. He talks about business, it's his life, it's alive. It, it, it has a feeling of real life, versus the abstract professor, talks, it's like, he's, like, he's like talking about Mars, yeah, talking about business. You know, it's, he's never been to Mars, he's never, been, never, never earned a dime in his life. It's all abstract, it's logical, philosophical, interesting, brilliant, but there's no feel of reality. So I can have a whole house, but it's only when you bring in the interior decorator, and oh, now suddenly it feels at home, you feel at home. So that's when you take the concept and you feel at home in the concept. It settles in. You pickle the concept. It settles in. You internalize it. You integrate it. That's that. So that's Chachma Bina Das. But you can go to LessonsInTanya.com, chapter 3, the first part of the Tanya, where Alter Rebbe discusses at great length. Chachma Bina Das. Chabad. To be continued next Tuesday. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.